This episode deals with sexual assault and contains some graphic detail. Please be mindful as you proceed. When I was done, I literally like opened the porta potty door and he was right there, the founder of the nonprofit, standing right in front of me. It was very surprising, like shocking, like felt like an ambush. And he immediately started kissing me. In 2018, Erin Scanlon was a first lieutenant in the Army stationed at Fort Bragg. She and her friend decided to go off base to have a fun night together. While at the party, Erin was sexually assaulted by a fellow enlisted soldier. After going through the proper channels to report the assault to her superiors, you would think the nightmare would be over. But the way in which the military dealt with Erin's case was a new nightmare in itself. Listen to Erin tell her story in her own words in an interview with Crawl Space's Jennifer Amell, recorded earlier this year. This is not the end of Erin's story. In fact, the nightmare was just beginning as they moved to prosecute her rapist, and the military chain of command got involved. This episode is part one. There is a part two coming next week, the second half of Erin's story. If you want to listen to more of Erin's story, she has a podcast out there called Hey Erin. You can contact her on Instagram at Hey Erin Scanlon. That's H E Y E R I N S C A N L O N. We're going to break first for commercial. We'll be right back with Erin's story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I'm from um, Scottsdale, Arizona. I did the ROTC program at University of Arizona. I got my bachelor's in family studies and human development. And um, after I graduated, um, you commission and start active duty. I um, moved away from home. My family was really sad. I was like, really like the first person to move away and started active duty as a field artillery officer. And um, so my first duty station was Fort Sill, Oklahoma. What's field artillery? Field artillery is like the cannons and rockets. So my first time, my first unit I was in was cannons and it was an airborne unit. So we drop the cannons out of airplanes and then we jump after them and set them up and shoot. And then my second unit was uh, rockets. And so they shoot rockets. And then I was actually on the, uh, the radar that tracks the rockets and where they impact. Uh, I was stationed at Fort Sill for like seven months or so. It's just enough for the field artillery training and 
airborne school to be airborne qualified because I was going to an airborne unit. So I was at airborne school for like a month and then went to my permanent duty station, which was Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was at Fort Bragg for actually the rest of my career, um, just because my career timeline got um, a little bit screwed up because of my personal situation. Um, So I would have moved sooner, but um, I ended up just staying here until I um, got medically retired. So I was here for like four years. In 2016, I was a a newly promoted first lieutenant and I was, I had just moved jobs um, and I was a fire support officer. So I was attached to an infantry uh, company as their field artillery expert, essentially. I was the first girl in every job I had. And then still then I was the only girl in that whole out of like 500 people. Was that like a little disconcerting or did you kind of like like it? I feel like starting with sports, learn, you know, in, in high school, you just kind of are a doer rather than like a thinker. So it didn't really even like occur to me to like do things based on gender roles. I just did what I enjoyed. And then starting in ROTC, you're always already the minority. So I was just kind of used to it. It really doesn't even occur to me most of the time that like I'm the only girl in a room full of men usually. Did you experience any kind of like teasing or whatever because you were the only woman? It was really just like them getting used to having a girl around, but that I'm really not that different, especially when we're like out in the field working. I think I was an an asset, if anything. Did you ever feel like you couldn't do a certain job because of your gender? Mostly just like physical, like lifting heavy things, jumping with all of your equipment really sucks when the equipment weighs more than you. But at the same time, there are a lot of skinny dudes too that were that are in the army. So, I mean, yeah, I was probably the smallest person, but it's not like there was no one else anywhere near my stature. So that brings us up to uh, September in 2016, and it's kind of the reason that we're here to talk about your assault. So in as little or as much detail as, as you want, just take us through what happened. Okay, so September of 2016, it was a Friday night, and I actually went to the gym to lift with my normal girlfriend, gym buddy, and we did our workout and then we decided, I think she like had a babysitter or something that night. So she actually wanted to do something and I didn't get to hang out with her outside of the gym very often. So we wanted to do that. Um, and so we went to a restaurant called um, Max in Fayetteville. It's like a restaurant bar that we had been to lots of times, pretty close to Bragg. So pretty popular with um, the military, and there was a nonprofit organization that was there, and they were having some sort of like fundraising event. Like they had a table set up with merchandise and whatnot that you could buy. So, in talking with other people around that night, we found out that the nonprofit, their mission was to ride together as like a motorcycle club from California all the way across the country to and in Arlington, Virginia, and North Carolina was like their last stop. So 
my friend and I were pretty social, talking to lots of people. And then pretty much everyone went to another bar, pretty much like everyone that was at that restaurant went to another bar that night because it was their grand reopening. So um, my friend and I got a ride with some guys that I knew and we went to um, this new bar. It was really busy. We socialized with lots of people, some people I knew, some people I just met. And then the founder of the nonprofit was there again. So I talked to him towards the end of the night. And then that's when he invited us to the after party. And we were a little bit confused because we thought that this bar was the after party because that's what everyone said at the first bar. But he was like, no, the after, after party. I was like, okay, like we're having a good time. We'll go. So my girlfriend and I actually took a cab with him and then one of his friends. I don't even know who that other guy was, but he would just like got into the cab with us too. We are in the cab. We stopped at a gas station for some reason. I don't know. Someone needed something. And then we show up or the cab pulls up at the after party to drop us off. And they were calling it the warehouse. When we got out of the cab, we realized it was literally a warehouse. It reminds me of like those garage CrossFit gyms, like real industrial, like um, it was a literally a dirt road driving up to it. And the whole garage door was like open. My friend and I were like looking around. We're like, okay. We looked at each other. We're not staying here more than 20 minutes. Um, we literally said that to each other. And one of my other friends who I had been like texting throughout the night had wanted us to come over and up until getting to the warehouse, I had kept telling him, um, no, sorry, like we're hanging out with some other people. We're at a bar or we're going to a party, whatever, like um, can't hang out tonight. Well, when we got to the warehouse and we're like, we're not staying here. I texted him saying, never mind, we will come over. This is not a good situation. We're not staying here. And he was like, what's wrong? I was like, I'll explain. Like, this is just, I, I said that in my text. I was like, I'll, this, I'll just explain. Like, this is just like super sketchy. Not really good. Not a good situation. So I ordered an Uber and we went into the little warehouse building. My friend was really, really hungry. She's like a bodybuilder. So she's always eating, always like focused on where her next meal is coming from. So, um, and they were like, we have food inside. So we we're standing by this table. She was eating meatballs from a crock pot. And we we're standing like waiting for the Uber. Um, it said it was like 20 minutes away, probably. And I, being me, always have to go to the bathroom, like all, like literally all the time. And so again, I asked the founder of the nonprofit while we were standing there, hey, where's the bathroom? And he was like, oh, there's no bathroom here, but there's a porta potty outside. Just go out this door 
turn to the right and there's a porta potty right there. And I was like, oh my God, like as if this couldn't get any sketchier. Uh, you're lucky I'm in the military and will actually use a porta potty. <laughs> and so I set down my purse with my phone and everything in it on a table with my girlfriend. I was like, I'm going to the bathroom. Went out the door to go to the bathroom. And when I was done, I literally like opened the porta potty door and he was right there, the founder of the nonprofit, standing right in front of me. It was very surprising, like shocking, like felt like an ambush. And he immediately started kissing me. And I pushed him away and said, like, no, stop, find someone else. It was very weird. Um, it felt very, I don't know, like being used and a little bit creepy that he followed me outside to the porta potty. A lot um, creepy. <laughs> <laughs> because it was like literally outside. And this entire location, like the entire warehouse, was itself sort of in this like back alley industrial area of downtown. To this day, I will not go anywhere near there. So it's very weird, but I was also very like angry. Like, why do you think you can just like follow me into an alley and kiss me? Like, excuse me? No, stop, get off of me. And he would not. And so he, I like don't really remember being moved or like how I got to this other spot. But the next thing I remember is I was being like pushed up against something, like my back was to something. And I was like, stop, there's people right there. I thought like that would might detract or stop him to point out that there were other people like around sort of, and it didn't. And then the next thing I remember is being pushed up against, I don't know how I got there, but the next thing I remember is being pushed up against the grill of an old car. And so I like realized that I was literally in like a car junkyard behind the building and that is where I was like, had the realization like, oh shit, this is what's happening and he won't stop and there's nothing I can do about it. And he actually literally picked me up so much so that my shoes fell off. Um, and I remember because I was wearing sandals and I was like, oh no, my sandals, like, I don't, this is like a dirt sketchy area. I don't want to like be barefoot over here. They literally picked me up out of my sandals and put me on top of the hood of a different junkyard car and continued assaulting me. And I was like, just thinking, 
please let this be over quick. Please let this be over quick. And eventually he like finished what he was doing. And I jumped down, ran back to go grab my shoes and ran back inside to my friend. And I was, I remember being like very flustered and like grabbed my phone from the table inside when I got back and I had a bunch of missed calls from the Uber driver because he couldn't find us from my friend who I was supposed to go to his house because he was like where are you and the perpetrator had followed me back inside and saw me like trying to make all these phone calls Um, and he was like oh are you trying to get an Uber because he's not gonna find you here I was like, what? Well, then, and I like thrust the phone at him. And I was like, well, then you talk to him and explain how to get here because I'm getting out of here. And then I called my friend all upset. And I remember talking to him and he was like, I don't know what he told me after. He was like, I don't know what you were saying, but I could tell like you were very upset um, and something wasn't right. And then at that point, the perpetrator kind of kept trying to like talk to me and I wouldn't let him get near me. I kept like dodging away from him. And then I just started walking out of the building and like didn't even grab my friend. My friend was like, wait up, like, where are you going? And I was like, I'm getting out of here. And at that, about that point is when the perpetrator, he, he actually texted me saying, how are you doing? Question mark. Because he had to text me because I wouldn't let him get near me. And second of all, who texts someone that after it, it was clear, I was very upset mm-hmm. to, it was clear to him. I was pretty upset. How did he get your number? When we were at the first bar, he gave me his business card mm-hmm. and was like, here's my cell phone. So you can text me. And so I had texted him like, hey, this is Aaron. We just met at Max. And then I texted him when we were at the second bar as well. And he like he had texted me like, oh, are you at the other bar or whatever? So so he did have his phone number. That was um, the only the way that the police found him because I didn't know his name. Like I didn't know his real name. I just started walking out of the building, walked down the dirt road, around the corner. I just wanted to get kind of like out of his line of sight. And then I think that was like the nearest road. It still wasn't even like a road, but there was another Uber there. And I was like, oh, you're an Uber. And he's like, yeah, are you, I don't know, Katie, like some other girl. And I was like, nope. And I got in his car and he's like, no, 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 you're not my ride. And I was like, I am now. Take me out of here. I was like, you can cancel your other Uber and I'll order you, but start driving now. And I mean, my friend was with me. She was like just following me. And when we got in the Uber, I didn't really say anything to her. Oh, when we were walking out of the, of the warehouse, I said something like, I think I was just raped or something like that to her. And she was just like, I think she was also a little bit in shock too. Mm-hmm. And in the Uber, I didn't say really any more to her. Um, I just sat there and started crying and got to my friend's house. 
he had been out with his friends and was drinking too. And I had been drinking and I just, he was like, what the heck is going on? And I just like started crying and kind of told him everything. I was like, it was awful. It was literally a junkyard car alley, but he's like this head of a nonprofit. And my friend was like, um, you have to go to the hospital in the morning. I was like, what? I didn't, I don't know. I wasn't quite thinking that far out. And so I was like, oh my God, I think you're right. So I texted one of my girlfriends saying in the morning, like, I mean, it was only like a couple hours later, but a couple hours later, I texted my girlfriend saying, um, like, I think I was just taken advantage of last night. What do I do? And she's like, okay, I'm coming to get you. And she literally showed up um, at the apartment and took me to the army hospital. She had called ahead already to the 24-7 online hotline phone for the sexual assault response coordinators on Fort Bragg. So um, a active duty sexual assault response coordinator met us at the hospital. Um, and I remember she was like, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, nope, let's just uh, do this, whatever we got to do in the hospital so I can uh, get this over with. So I did the whole safe exam, sexual assault forensic exam, which is awful in itself. It's essentially the nurse she was very sweet and um did the best did her best job under the circumstances but essentially it's just them collecting forensic evidence from the crime scene which is your body mm -hmm. so pulling um hair getting dna and fluid swabs um doing the black light tests, taking pictures of your body. Um, it sounds traumatizing all over <laughs> Yeah. Um, the worst part was they give you a bunch of medication for all of the STDs like right away in case you got anything. And one of them was so awful. I literally threw up from it because it's like so ch chalky. And then they also take a, a bunch of blood samples for the other tests. So actually for like a year after, every time I had to get my blood drawn for any reason for like, because they do follow up exams for the STD testing for you, but also just being in the army, like you always have to get, and I, and I was doing pre-deployment stuff. So we had to, I had to keep getting my blood drawn like a bunch of times. So for a year after, like a year after that, every time I got my blood drawn, I would instantly burst into tears. And the poor little army medics are like, what did I do, ma'am? I'm sorry. And I was like, no, it's not your fault. Like, I just can't get my blood drawn without thinking about that. That was like one of the weirdest triggers is what it's called for me. Because it would literally happen. Just, it didn't matter the environment. Every time I got my blood drawn, I'd burst into tears. That whole exam was like eight hours long. It was such a long day. I had to 
blow off. I had a commitment that day. I was supposed to like do something with another nonprofit organization that I was working with. And my girlfriend who was with me was like, she just texted them like, I'm with Erin. She's sick in the ER. She'll be all right, but we can't make it. So then she dropped me off at like, I don't know, four or five o'clock. So I'd been gone from my apartment for like almost 24 hours. And I like walked in the door and uh, actually it was because my chicken in my crock pot was still going from the night before. And I was like, oh my God. And it's when it just all just like hit me, like, and just burst into tears and fell to the floor. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. At the hospital, the way that the military does is you can file for a restricted report or an unrestricted report. Restricted means you're only getting like healthcare involved at the moment. And then you can always switch it to unrestricted, which means law enforcement and chain of command is going to get involved. Um, So you can always go from restricted to unrestricted, but you can't go from unrestricted back to restricted. So at that point, it was just a restricted report. Pretty much the moment I walked into the hospital meant that I had to at least file a restricted report Mm -hmm. um, because they would have on record that I got the safe exam done. But Monday morning, so that was Saturday, Saturday, I was at the hospital. Sunday, I like pretty much laid in bed all day. And actually one of my friends texted me and she was like, something wrong. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I was like, what do you know? How do you know this? And she's like, I can tell you haven't like posted anything on social media in like two days. And she was like, no. And I was like, um, yeah, I think I was assaulted. And she was like horrified, but she also shared an experience with me as well. Her own experience. Mm-hmm. So Monday morning when I went into work, I couldn't really focus. And so I went pretty much immediately to go see the sexual assault response coordinator who had been with me at the hospital that day because that's her job. So I went to her office, cried a little bit, but I was like, I think I'm, I want to file a unrestricted report. You know, I can't, can't really go back to normal after this. So let's just did you debate a lot beforehand? I told her uh, in the morning I wanted to file an unrestricted report, but I wanted to talk to a chaplain first. Unfortunately, it took a long time. It took like all morning to get a chaplain available. Even though they have a 24-7 hotline phone, um, the chaplain wouldn't talk to me on that because he said I had to go to my unit chaplain even though I explained I didn't want to go to my unit chaplain because then everyone at my unit would see me talking to a chaplain. So finally, like right after lunch, I had an appointment scheduled with some random chaplain in a nearby unit. And I just needed to hear from a chaplain, you know, expressed this happened. I think I should report it to the police, but I just want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And the chaplain was great. He told me, I think he read me really well. And he told me like what I needed to hear. And he was like, you're an officer in the military. You're a leader. You like to be a leader. 
and you want to be a leader and this is your chance to lead you have to recognize like this man is a predator and you won't stop unless you actively try to stop him how try to prevent him um and like this is your chance to like lead and lead by example and so I was that like really resonated with me because I'm a very like idealistic person I guess and that was why I was why I was had joined the military and thrived in being an officer and being a leader so um I was like okay thank you that's what I needed to hear so I went back to the SARC and I was like, okay, I'm ready. So she took me to CID, Army Criminal Investigative Division, because I was active duty. She called over to CID and she said, hey, I have a victim that wants to file unrestricted report. They're like, okay, come on down. So she took me to CID. They took um, most of my report, my statement. So I knew like the name that he gave me. Uh, and my friend had found him on Facebook and I had his phone number, but the name that he gave me and his Facebook name were not his real name. Which, so he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And I say that because it came up later in trial that they were like, you knew who he was. And I was like, I didn't even know his real name because he lied about that from the get go. So CID like looked him up, took my statement and then they disappeared for a minute they came back into the room uh after like talking amongst themselves privately and they sent me away they said um because the assault occurred in Fayetteville that was Fayetteville's jurisdiction and I had to file with them they would not really be involved I was like okay great. You couldn't have told me this before. I just spent an hour explaining the worst night of my life to you. Okay. So the Sark and I go down to Fayetteville Police Department. And by that point, the detectives had already left for the day. And so they like left me a note and they said, or they said, come back in the morning and ask to speak with this or this detective. It's like, okay for God's sakes, I'm just trying to like do the right thing, but okay. Um, I'll hang in there for another night. So the next morning I had my friend come with me who was with me at the hospital and the Sark from Fort Bragg. And I met with the detective, went in the little room and he took my statement again, all the details. Um, and then he wanted to know where the assault happened. And I didn't even know where the warehouse was, but I did have in the Uber app where the Uber had picked me up. So I showed him that he's like, okay, it's actually not very far from here. Will you take me so you can point out the spot to me? And I was like, oh my God, that was absolutely terrifying. Um, he's like, don't worry, we're in an unmarked detective car, but it was still terrifying. So my friend came with me, luckily. He drove to like the block where the Uber had pins, like picking us up. And it's weird, like the first things that you remember from a situation like that, like a trauma, 
but it was like I was like pointing out like the random things like oh shit there's the pile of mattresses from that other warehouse next to it and oh and then I saw the porta potty and he so he was like all right and he drove around there and they just burst into tears again and was like hyperventilating and I was like get me out of here and he would like took his notes or whatever of where where they would probably need to collect for evidence is yeah is that normal to like take the survivor back to the place where it happened it seems I don't know I mean I think everything helps them and they try to do as much as the survivor will cooperate with and I was trying to be very helpful but it was also just I don't know still like because I didn't know where it actually was the only it was not like I had any other memories with that of that location other than the assault so but I I mean I also think it was very I think it was helpful to the detective to see uh, my reaction that like visceral reaction that the average person would not have to seeing a junkyard car because that all went into the investigative report. And then they were able to like swab the area, um, which actually helped corroborate my story and gather evidence. They were able to gather like DNA and um, liquid evidence from the area. So we left as soon as possible. And that was, I mean, I stayed in contact a little bit with the detective, but it was, he had most of what he needed to get started on investigating. And he was like, all right, this is going to take a little bit of time, you know, but we'll keep you updated. At that point, I, uh, that night, I told my family um, with the help of my friend who was there for like everything. Like she was like a godsend because I was like, oh my God, this is very serious. Like law enforcement is involved now. This is terrifying. Um, my family's always been loving and supportive. And so I was like, I don't want to do this by myself. So I called them up. They're all in Arizona. I told them everything. It was really, really, really hard, especially because they had like entrusted the military with my care. Um, and I was so far away from home because I decided to join the military so that was really, really hard on them. And it was hard for me to like break their hearts in that way by telling them. But it was about three weeks later, the detective called me and was like, I just want to let you know that we had a few court hearings from then until now for a protective order. I had filed for, or I'm sorry, a no contact order. I had filed for a no contact order because I didn't want him near me, obviously. So the detective told me, all right, since he's going to be at court today for this, I will ask me, ask him if he wants to talk to me again. Initially, he, I guess he reached out to the police, I think without even them asking him um, and was like, I want to cooperate. And then he lawyered up and said he wouldn't give a statement. After that court hearing, like three weeks after the assault, they actually arrested him and charged him with two felony felonies and a misdemeanor, um, rape, sexual assault, and sexual battery. 
and he posted bail like almost immediately. Um, so he didn't even spend the night in jail. I think he knew it was coming. So the detective had called me to let me know that. And that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, pretty emotional in itself. Did you, uh, did you have any fear that he would like retaliate in any way? Or? I did. I was not really living at my apartment at that point. I was staying with my friends um, most nights on the other side of Bragg so that he couldn't find me. That was a very weird time because you're very much like extremely paranoid. I mean, I was paranoid until the trial, but very paranoid because it was new to me to be that paranoid. And then I just kind of became used to it. But I also obviously talked with my victim advocates and Sarks all the time. Like I was in their offices all the time um, in the middle of the work day, usually crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and they usually tried to reassure me that I think we had <laughs> kind of uh, tried to profile this particular predator and they were like, you know, I, I think he knows better than to try to harass you or attack you again. So that was like my only solace, like, He's such a good criminal that he knows what he's doing, that he's not going to risk messing up again. Did your like paranoia or your fear like extend to other men or other situations? Oh God, I did not sleep in the dark. Uh, I put my Glock next, I slept with my Glock next to my bed every night. Every single man with a beard scared the shit out of me. Living in Fayetteville was really hard because there's a lot of people in a small area and they're mostly military. And so multiple times in public areas like Target, I was out shopping at Target, which was like I would go to try to like distract myself or feel better. Like shopping at Target is therapeutic. Would literally get so scared by the surrounding military men who had no idea who I was, had no connection to him. I'd never met before, but the anxiety was so bad that I literally left and would not go out in public for to most places because of that reason. There was one time I was at the gym, at a new gym in a new town on the other side of Bragg because I started going there. Um, the gym was the gym was really really hard too. That was a that was a place where I left multiple times because of like an anxiety attack. And there was one particular one. This random guy was not even like looking at me, but I convinced myself that he knew me, knew I had reported the perpetrator, knew the perpetrator, and was going to tell him where I was so he could come retaliate against me or shut me up or whatever like convinced myself that so much to the point where, again, I left the gym mid-workout because I was so scared. Once or twice, I had seen the logo of his nonprofit on like a t-shirt or a water bottle of someone at the gym and had a panic attack and left. That actually happened this year too. So four years later, it's still happening. 
America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.